Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. Well, good morning, everyone. Man, it is so good to uh, to see all of you here. I just uh, just echo what Kara has already said. Uh, man, in the two years that we have been a church, we've never had to get ch- uh, new chairs out. That's never been a worry for us at all. So uh, praise God for that. That's such a good thing. But uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Michael Badger. I'm one of the elders, uh, one of the pastors here at Redeemer Church. And again, I just want to thank you so much uh, for all of you who have come out to sing praises to God with one another and to dive into His Word together. Um, and uh, if you've been here over the past few weeks, then you know that we took some time to step away from our study of Hebrews to look at the first advent of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus. Now, what was so wonderful about this time, this, this Advent time, is that we had the opportunity to look at how the Old Testament was, was really filled to the brim with prophecies about a coming Messiah, a coming Savior that would save His people from their sins. And after a millennia of waiting, He finally had come to this, this small, or as this small, weak, infant child that was born to this there's really this nobody girl named Mary from a nowhere town called Nazareth. But in the manger, as you all well are well aware, was not just any child, but as John 1 says in that feeding trough, was, was the very Word of God made flesh. The Word of God made flesh. In that child that was born to die was a nature that was truly human and a nature that was truly divine. And as we jump back into the book of Hebrews, one of the many wonderful things that God really seeks to teach us in this book is that one of the primary functions of the entirety of the Old Testament wasn't just to point to Jesus, the coming Messiah, although that is absolutely true, but it was also to teach us what sort of Messiah that He would actually be. You see, God did not leave any ambiguity as to what sort of Savior He would be. He didn't leave it up to our imaginations to think of the things that we need saved from and say, oh yes, that's what Jesus came to save us from. That's that's not the case. But in the history of Israel that we find woven throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, we're actually given the exact description of Jesus' Messiahship. Let me explain just real briefly. Because throughout the Old Testament and in the life of Israel, we really see three main offices or jobs that become crucial to Jewish life. One is that of the prophet. The prophet, the one who would uh, act as the mouthpiece of God, the representative of God to the people. Another was that of king, the one who was to govern the people of God and act as a bulwark against ungodliness entering into the nation of Israel. And then finally, there was the high priest, the one who acted as a representative of the people to God, offering sacrifices once a year to obtain a temporary forgiveness of their sins. Now, all three of these offices were so prominent in the Old Testament 
And they had the ultimate purpose of giving us this dramatic, dynamic view of what Jesus actually came to earth to accomplish. Each, each one giving us this, this different look at his mission on earth. And what is so great is that the book of Hebrews actually helps us, these, our, us New Testament Christians, really see those connections clearly. So think back to chapter 1 of Hebrews. If you have your Bibles with you, I, I really encourage you to open it up to the first chapter of Hebrews. Because in verses 1 and 2, we find that Jesus came to be the greatest prophet there ever was. Right? It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And so there is the first office being fulfilled, right? He became the greatest prophet that there ever was. Because the other prophets, they simply just spoke the Word of God. But what was Jesus? He was the Word of God. He was the very Word of God. And He even said that when you look upon Him, you didn't just see the, the, the flesh of, of Jesus, though you did, but you saw what? You saw the Father. You saw the Father. No other prophet could ever say the same because unlike Jesus, they were not God incarnate. And then in verse 3, we find that after He made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, taking his place as the king over his creation. Quoting from Psalm 45, we also find that in verse 8, it says of King Jesus, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdoms. And so all of the kings of the Old Testament, especially David, was this imperfect picture of the perfect king that was coming to take his throne. And lastly, we find that Jesus came to earth to be our perfect high priest. And the author of Hebrews spends actually a long time, a long time, on this particular role. Really from chapters 4 to 10, the details of Jesus taking on this role is really laid out. And Pastor Paul began our look at Jesus as our great high priest in the latter half of chapter 4 several weeks ago where we read of Jesus passing through the heavens to come to earth, experiencing weakness so that we could have a sympathetic high priest that we can cling on to and run to and find grace in our time of need. And so really in these three roles or offices, we find the details of what Jesus came to earth to do. He came to be the ultimate revelation of God, and He came to take His throne, and He came to be our great high priest. And so really, everything about the purpose of Jesus' ministry is found in these three roles. They're really important for us to know and understand. There's a lot more to cover about Jesus as our great high priest. And as we enter into chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, we will see the author kind of compare and contrast four main points between the high priests of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and Jesus as our great high priest. Now, I know that was a bit of a lengthy intro. So before we go any further, please pray with me. Oh Lord, you are so good. By your grace and mercy, Lord, you have brought us together this morning. 
And God, as we pray every week, Lord, we know that there are so many things that that are, are vying for our attention, that are fighting to pull our hearts away from what we are truly here to do, which is, is magnifying the name of your Son. And so, God, I pray that your Spirit just protects us from those things. Lord, keep, keeps everyone attentive, not, not to me, Lord, but God, to your Word and what you have to say through it. So, Lord, we pray that your Spirit is our guide this morning. And Lord, we love you. We pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. All right. So if you already have your Bibles open in Hebrews, uh, I invite you to flip them over to chapter 5. To chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. And I want you to take a look at the first half of the first verse. I know that's very specific. The first half of the first verse. And don't you dare read any further than that where the author begins the first of four descriptions of the typical human high priest that you would find in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. And it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And so here we actually have the the first characteristic of the high priest. Actually, you kind of see two, but I want to focus in on one. It was not a role that could be taken up but it was one that had to be appointed. It was by appointment only. The role of high priest was, was not up for grabs to anyone who wanted it. And this is actually reiterated in verse 4, which says, And no one takes this honor for himself, meaning becoming a high priest, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, Aaron was Moses' brother and often acted as Moses' kind of representative when he would go to the Pharaoh in, in Exodus, in, uh, in Egypt, demanding that he let God's people go when they were being held in captivity. But if you flip back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, you'll see in chapter 28 that the role of high priest being instituted. That's what you'll find there. And we'll get kind of into the details of that role in just a moment. But as you read this account of Aaron becoming the first high priest, you see that this position wasn't one that was just simply concocted in the mind of of Moses and uh, and Aaron. After the Israelites were rescued from Egypt, they weren't just kind of sitting around and just kind of twiddling their thumbs, trying to look for a a, a new job for Aaron since the old one was kind of done, didn't need it anymore. So they're just kind of thinking, man, Aaron, we need to find something for you to do now. So, ah, hey, high priest, let's do it. That's, that's, That's not how it happened. Instead, what you find is God instituting the role and choosing Aaron to become the first high priest. It was a role that was instituted by God, and Aaron was a man chosen by God to fill that role. And friends, this choosing of God is actually extremely important because the role of the high priest is not, and was not, a position of self-exaltation. It wasn't a a position that that was meant to garner this, this, this high status, right? There was nothing special about Aaron that made him qualified to be a high priest other than the fact that he was a human being. The role of high priest was one that was to be marked by servitude and humility. As we saw in the first verse of our passage this morning, the whole whole purpose of the high priest was to be the representative of the people before God, meaning that that was a role of service. 
He was a servant of God, and he was a servant to the people of Israel. A true priest was a man that was motivated solely by a desire to honor God and to serve men without concern for personal advancement. So that is the the first aspect of the high priesthood. He must be chosen by God. Now in verses 5 and 6, if you kind of jump ahead just a little bit, in verses 5 and 6 of our passage, the author of Hebrews directs our attention to the way in which Christ then fulfills this first aspect of the high priest. It reads, So also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest. But what? He was appointed by Him who said, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. As he, also said, or as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now there's a, a lot to unpack here, but let me tell you what the overall gist of these two verses is before we kind of look a little bit more briefly at the details. You see, Christ did not come to earth to grab for himself glory and honor by kicking out the current high priest and taking upon himself that role. That wasn't his, his plan, but rather, just as it was with the other high priest, so it was with him. He was chosen by God the Father to take up the mantle of the great high priest, to be the fulfillment of everything that that office was meant to illustrate. That is the purpose of the quotations in verses 5 and 6. That's what those, that's what those passages are meant to point to. The first actually comes from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, and we've actually already seen that previously in Hebrews 1. Do you remember that? I'm confident you do. That was only like five months ago. And I know that you remember every single one of my sermons and every detail of every one. So. But the focus of the quotation in Hebrews 1 was to show us the deity of Christ. That was the focus of it, to show us the deity of Christ. But here in chapter 5, the author uses it to actually show us the, the chosenness of Christ. The chosenness of Christ. So do you remember when Jesus was baptized by his cousin John the Baptist in Matthew 3? At his his great baptism. What did the Father say as Jesus was was raised out of the water? Do you remember that? Yes. Nailed it. Good job. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That's what he said. And he spoke these words as a public confirmation of the ministry of Jesus. It was to show that Jesus was actually truly chosen by the Father and that everything that He was doing and that He was going to do in His earthly ministry was approved by the Father. And this is what the author is conveying through the quotation of Psalm 2 here in Hebrews 5. Jesus becoming our great high priest was approved and accepted by God the Father because Jesus was chosen before the foundations of the earth, by the Father, for that very purpose. Does that make sense? Good. All right. This is also the reason for the use of the quotation in verse 7. or Sorry, verse 6, rather. This quotation is from Psalm 110, and it introduces a, a rather enigmatic character named Melchizedek. 
Now we're going to be spending a lot of time with, with old Mel in chapter 7, so, so I don't want us to get too hung up on him now. But he actually appears only twice in the Old Testament until he shows up again here in Hebrews. And the very first appearance of him is actually found in Genesis 14, where he is described as the king of Salem, but also a priest of the God Most High that Abraham meets on the way back from a battle. And, and this is actually pretty amazing, right? Because remember, we just learned that only those who are appointed by God can become high priests. And what I haven't mentioned yet is that within the nation of Israel, only those who were from the tribe of Levi, who were from the line of Aaron, could be priests within the temple. And only those who were direct descendants of Aaron could be those who were chosen to be the high priest. But there's, there's, there's an obvious problem here. You see it? With Melchizedek? This was long before Aaron and Moses. This was long before Moses and Aaron came on the scene, roughly between four and 500 years. And so there was a, there was a high priest that actually preceded Aaron and his descendants. It wasn't even a, a direct descendant from Abraham, which makes it even more amazing. So in God's sovereign plan, He appointed, He chose this, this mysterious king of Salem to be a priest of the God Most High. Now there's a lot of theories as to who this man actually was, and we'll get into some of those theories later on. But for right now, I want us to focus on why the author of Hebrews is using this quote from Psalm 110, which was written by David a thousand years after the time of Melchizedek which is the second and last time his name is actually found in the Old Testament. Remember, it says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so this was a messianic prophecy from David, a prophecy pointing to the coming Messiah, to the coming of Jesus. And it is really God the Father essentially saying through David that, that I am declaring that you, Jesus, are going to be a high priest and not just any typical high priest who, who serves the people for a while, but then dies and, and has to have a replacement. But rather, by my appointment, you are going to be the great high priest who is able to fulfill that role to its fullest realization, not just momentarily, but forever. That, that's what God is saying. And so we see that just as the high priests that came before him, Jesus, our eternal great high priest, was chosen for this role by God the Father. And his aim in coming to earth was, was not to seek out and obtain exaltation for himself, but in fact to lower himself, to become man, so that he could represent us before the Heavenly Father. Now, the next point of comparison comes from the second half of verse 1. The second half of verse 1. I know we're kind of bouncing around a little bit, but, but bear with me. It says, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And so it's important that the high priest was a human being so that they can represent other human beings, which again points us to the importance of the incarnation, that Jesus took on true humanity so that he could truly represent us. But verse 1 continues. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so this is actually the primary function of the high priest. 
right here, the primary function. He was to offer gifts. And when speaking of gifts, this is typically referring to gifts of praise and thanksgiving to God. But he was also, once a year, to enter into what was called the Holy of Holies, the part of the temple that was, that was completely separated, completely cut off from the rest, where the presence of God resided. And on that one day of the year called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sprinkle the blood of a goat on what was called the mercy seat that was inside of the Holy of Holies which was essentially the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. That's what the mercy seat was. It wasn't actually a chair. I know that can sometimes be misunderstood, but it was actually the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant in order to receive the temporary forgiveness of the sins, <clears throat> excuse me, of the sins of God's, uh, God's people. And this was really the most important job of the high priest, right? This right here. You see, more than anything else, the high priest was to be concerned with the sins of the people and their relationship with God. And I know that when we look back and we, when we see these things in the Old Testament, like these, these animal sacrifices, it seems so kind of foreign and, and almost cultic to us. But the role of the great high priest in offering this blood sacrifice was extremely important because it pointed to the overwhelming problem of sin. The overwhelming problem of sin. One of the things that you learn early in the Christian faith is that all humanity is desperately sinful. We're desperately sinful. We're not, we don't sin because, because we're, or sorry, we don't, uh, we're not sinful because we sin. We sin because we are sinful. That's, that's where our hearts are. Wow, man, good job, buddy. And we learn from Romans 6.23 that the consequences of sin is what? Death. Death. A death that separates us from the goodness of God and leads to hell. And the only way to find any sort of forgiveness or freedom from sin and from the, the justice of God is through a death. And in the Old Testament, the goat that the high priest offered up for the sake of God's people was, was actually a not this, this weird foreign thing that was, that was kind of creepy, but it was actually a testament to God's loving mercy. Do you know that? When you see the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament, it's actually pointing to the mercy of God. Instead of God doling out His righteous judgment on the people, which they rightly deserved, the death of the goat would take their place. The blood of the goat would take the place of their blood. But it was an imperfect sacrifice. It had to be done again and again and again to cover the new and fresh sins of the people. And about this, Philip Hughes, the theologian, writes, the high priest was something far more than a cultic or liturgical specialist. His office was concerned, above all, with the radical problem of human sinfulness and the need of the people for reconciliation with God. The priest was a mediator, not only representing the sinful people before God, but actually bringing them back into fellowship with God through his work on their behalf. And so this was what the role of the high priest was, was all about. But friends, by the grace of God, Jesus, the great high priest, has made better offerings has made better offerings than the old covenant high priest ever could. Look at verse 7 of our passage. Verse 7 of Hebrews 5. 
It says, in the days of his flesh, meaning during his earthly ministry, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So this is quite amazing, really, because even before the cross, even before his death and resurrection, Jesus had already begun to take on the role of the great high priest. And we are told that he did this first by representing us in his own prayers and supplications. God represented us, Christ represented us in his own prayers. And a perfect example of this is found in what is called Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. And if you've never read the high priestly prayer in John 17, man, I really encourage you to read it. Because after he prays, or after he prays for the Father to glorify him, and after he prays for his disciples, beginning in verse 20, and I think we have that passage on the screen, beginning in verse 20, he begins to pray for everyone, everyone who would ever come to believe in his name. He prays a prayer for all Christians throughout the ages. And friends, this is, this is so beautiful. This is so beautiful because as I read this, and as you read along and your Bibles are on the screen, I, I pray that you let it really just penetrate your heart. Let it, let it soak in. Because he prayed this prayer for you, Christian. For you. This prayer that, that's on the screen, that's in your Bibles, this is about you. It's about us. Feel the immense amount of love and care that Jesus has for you as, you as you hear this and read this and know that His heart, or that this is the heart, that He has for you yesterday and today and forevermore. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Christian, the, the glory of God has been shared by the Son and given to you, that they may be one even as we are one. In them and in, or sorry, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And this is, this is speaking to the beauty of being together in the body of Christ. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. With what kind of love, friends? With what kind of love? Even as you loved me. That's the, that's the kind of love. Jesus prays that the same love the Father has for Himself is the exact same love that He pours out without reserve onto us. Amen. How incredible is that? Isn't that hard to, to wrap your mind around sometimes? If you're a believer in this room, God the Father, the love that He shows you is no less than the love that He has for Christ His Son. Just let that sink in for a minute. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a truth that's hard for us to hold on to sometimes? Because sometimes we, we just get so caught up in our sinfulness, which is, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but we think that, that there's no way that, that Christ could love me, that the Father could love me. Now, friends, that's a lie. That is a lie straight from Satan. God the Father loves you with the unrelenting love that He has for His Son. 
How incredible is that? Sorry, it keeps going. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Friends, this is the prayer of our great high priest. The prayers and supplication that Christ, as our representative, offers to the Father on our behalf. And don't you just want to live in that passage? And because the Father is the one whom appointed Jesus for that very task of offering prayers and supplications on our behalf, and because we know that Christ Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father with all reverence, we are told at the end of verse 7 that the Father did what? Heard Him. The Father heard Him. Jesus was heard. And I hope you understand the implication of this. This prayer and all the other prayers Jesus has offered up on our behalf to the Father was heard. And not only heard, friends, but joyfully granted. Joyfully granted. Because of Jesus' priestly work, we get to share in His glory. We get to experience the unending love of the Father. We get to join with one another in the body of Christ. And we get to be indwelled by Christ through the Spirit. How amazing is that? The prayer of Jesus and His high priestly prayer was granted. That's the reality in which we live. And this is all because of our wonderful, great high priest. And what a wonderful high priest He is. But friends, as you know, our great high priest didn't only offer up prayers and supplications on our behalf. That wasn't the only thing He offered. But just as the previous High priests offered up sacrifices for the sins of the people. So too did Jesus. He couldn't fulfill this role without doing so. But His sacrifice was markedly different. He offered up the sacrifice not of, not of a, an animal, not of a, not of a goat, but Himself. He offered Himself. Verses 8-9 through nine says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And now, just real quick, this doesn't mean, as we've said before, that there was something morally deficient in Christ where he needed to learn obedience through correction due to indwelling sin that he had. Not at all. What this means is that he was truly human. And he learned all of... <clears throat> he, sorry, excuse me. And he learned what it meant to obey perfectly through everything that he suffered. And then verse 9 continues, and it says, And being made perfect, meaning through his suffering and his sinless life of obedience to the Father, he was made into the perfect high priest, and he was made into the perfect sacrifice. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now friends, I'm going to slip in the third point of comparison here because it actually closely relates to the second. Because we're told in verse 2 and 3 that because the high priest is beset with weakness, 
because the high priest was beset with weakness, in the Greek here meaning literally clad in weakness, like a, like a soldier is clad in armor, even the high priest of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, was obligated to offer a sacrifice for his own sins before he could offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And this is because as much of a good and godly man that he may have been, it still didn't change the fact that he was still a sinful human being. It didn't change the fact that to the core of who he was, was sinful and in need of forgiveness. So even he had to offer the blood of an animal, a bull in his case, to be a temporary cover for his sins before he could offer the sacrifice for the people. And again, that, that, that wasn't so for our great high priest, right? Remember what chapter 4, verse 15 said. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says, Jesus was tempted. Jesus was tempted in every single respect that all human beings throughout all time have been tempted. And yet, He experienced all of those temptations without even once succumbing to sin. Can you imagine that? I can't. Experiencing temptation for his entire life and not sinning a single time. He was spotless. He was perfect. And he was so perfect, in fact, that our great high priest had no better, no purer sacrifice to offer than himself. No animal was able to give what he was able to give. A perfectly righteous human life untainted by sin. Jesus stepped down to earth to be both priest and sacrifice. On the cross, He acted out the ultimate role of His great high priestly calling. He was our representative as He was tried and beaten and crucified. And the filth of our sins... Every act of rebellion against God, every evil thought, every corrupt desire, all of it that was within us that was sinful and evil was placed upon Him as He hung there, as He died in our place. And the offering of His own blood was made to the Father. And brothers and sisters, to our eternal joy, the offering of our great high priest was accepted. His blood was enough to cover our sins and wash them away. And not just, not just momentarily. Not, not, just, not just for a, a moment or until we sin again, but forever. They were washed away forever. And just as our sins were credited to Him on the cross, His perfect life, His perfect life, his perfect obedience, his, his sinlessness was credited to us. And we get to stand before God justified. How amazing is that? We stand before Him in right relationship. As children before a loving Father. Never having to fear. Listen, never having to fear that our destinies will ever lead anywhere but heaven. Praise God for that. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, Jesus does not save us today and leave us to perish tomorrow. He knows what is in man. And so He has prepared nothing less than eternal salvation for man. A salvation that was not eternal would turn out to be no salvation at all. Those whom Jesus saved are saved indeed. 
Man can be the author of temporary salvation, but only he who is a high priest forever can bring in a salvation that endures how long? Forever. Forever. Jesus is the source of our eternal salvation, verse 7 says. Our eternal salvation. Friends, what a, what a joy it is to know that. But the question is, do you, do you, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Or do you simply pay lip service to this wonderful reality? Christian, the only lasting joy in this life, despite what our culture may tell you, is finding your refuge in Christ Jesus and holding on to with everything you have, fighting in your mind and fighting in your heart to hold on to the fact that what He has done as your great high priest is true. Is absolutely true. And if you have not put your faith in Him, if Jesus is not your great high priest, friend, then I invite you to put your trust in Him so that you too can be an inheritor of eternal salvation and experience the love of the Father that is equal to the love for Jesus. And you can experience that forever. An infinite, bountiful, joyous, peace-filled love. That can be yours through faith in Christ. All right, we have now made it to the last point of comparison. Now, for that, we have to backtrack just a little bit because we're ping-ponging back and forth. But uh, pong your way back to uh, verse 2, if you will. Because along with offering gifts and sacrifices for sins, the high priest also had somewhat of a pastoral role. Now, I don't know if I am alone in, uh, or if I was alone in thinking this, but, but growing up, even, and kind of even into Bible college, really, when I, when I thought of the high priest, typically what I had in my mind was, was kind of a, uh, a somewhat stern and, and possibly even kind of sour old man with a long white beard who was kind of standoffish and, and holier than thou. And, and, and it was for good reason, right? He was, he was kind of standoffish because he had a really important job. He had, he had probably one of the most important jobs. And so he didn't want anybody to get in the way of that job. And so he just kind of wanted to push people aside so they can just kind of focus on being a great high priest. That, that's, that's kind of the image that I had in my mind. But let's read verse 1 again and then into verse 2 and we can make fun of how terribly wrong I was. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And then verse 2, he can deal gently. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. The author of Hebrews here is painting a picture of kind of two somewhat different people. Those who fall into ignorant sin because they simply don't know what the Word of God has to say about certain things. And then he is speaking of those who have kind of strayed away in their thoughts and actions. Those who have allowed themselves to wander away from the things of God. The things that they know are, are good and holy. Now what I think is so beautiful here is that because the high priest understood what it meant to be human, 
And because he himself struggled with his own sinful nature, because he struggled with, with sometimes falling into sin because he was still learning the things of God, and he, and he struggled with sinful habits that pulled his mind and heart away from the things of heaven, because he knew what, what all of that was like, he could therefore have sympathy with other human beings who are struggling with those same things. And instead of dealing harshly with them, he could deal gently with them. He could lovingly rebuke them. He could, with grace, call them to repentance and, and call them back into godly living. And yet again, the author wants to draw us to a wonderful point of comparison between the Old Testament high priest and our great high priest. And again, we see the incredible importance of the incarnation of Christ, of Him becoming truly human. Because if we have read, as we have read already, when Christ lived on the earth, He became well acquainted with the struggles of this world. Remember verse 8. He learned obedience through, through what? A, a peace-filled life? No. Through what He suffered. Through what He suffered. He knew well the pain of living among sinful people. He knew the weakness of a human nature. He knew what heartache was like as he, as he uh, stood weeping at the grave of his friend Lazarus. And as one commentator put it, he shed blood, tinged drops of sweat while contemplating his own death just as you wring your heart over trouble and pain. He experienced abuse and torture and betrayal. And as we have said already, as chapter 4 tells us, he experienced every temptation under the sun. Every single one. The various high priests throughout Israel's history were, were sinfully weak, but Jesus the great high priest was sinlessly weak. But he was weak. And so while our great high priest is different than the other high priest that came before him in that he went through all of that suffering without sinning, he still had the full range of human experience. And he suffered through it all. He suffered through all of it so that he could obtain for us our salvation. But not only that, but also so that as we go through this Christian life and as we wrestle with temptations and the sins that they give birth to, he can deal with us gently. Gently. And friends, how, how amazing is this truth? The sufferings that he went through on earth were necessary, were necessary for him to be able to completely take on the role of our sympathetic great high priest. He couldn't become it without it. Can you believe that? He went through all of that. He went through all of that immense suffering as a human being so that He could save you and also sympathize with you. Could you imagine, imagine putting yourself through, through suffering just so that you can sympathize with somebody else? So that he could, he could know you intimately and know intimately what you are going through in your pain and suffering and even as you fight your still sinful flesh. All of that so, so that he could deal with you harshly? Angrily? With condemnation? No. So that he can deal with you tenderly and lovingly and gently. Isn't it amazing that he knew that being chosen as our great high priest would mean that he, 
the second person of the Trinity and the King of Kings would have to suffer. He did that to save you and He did that to be your comforter. How incredible is that? Even in our ignorance and our waywardness, for those who love Him and obey Him, we are invited to confidently draw near His throne of grace. And as chapter 4, verse 16 tells us, we will find mercy and grace in our time of need. Please pray with me. Lord, I thank You. I thank You so much, Lord, that human beings did not define what sort of Savior You would be. There are so many things that, that we think that we need saved from. But so often we, we miss that what we truly need saved from is our own sinfulness. That we desperately need a Savior to come and rescue us from our own hearts and, and put within us new hearts. New hearts that can love you. And so Lord, we thank you that you came down to be our great high priest. To offer a sacrifice that, that no one else and nothing else could ever, could ever give. God, we thank you so much for coming and being our great high priest, being our great comforter, suffering through everything that you suffered for so that you could sympathize with us and so that we could draw near to you and find that grace and find that mercy. So Lord, we love you. And I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.